everybody. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you all to this afternoon's panel, Questions of Scale, Production, and Labor. Thank you all so much for joining us. I'm Juliette Sperling. Our session today centers on the idea that material texts traditionally viewed as the limit cases of format, collaged and manipulated pages, sculpturally tall bindings, prints larger than our own bodies, in fact, hold the power to cast new light on or even challenge what we think of as normative or standard bibliographic narratives. Three speakers will enact this idea through 20-minute talks featuring their own compelling research on the interpretive potential of unusual formats. I ask that you hold all questions until the end of our session, at which point our moderator will get our discussion started with a short response. On that note, I am so pleased to introduce our moderator, Dr. Suzanne Carr-Schmidt, who is George Amos Poole III, Curator of Rare Books and Manuscripts at the Newbery. As a scholar of early modern print culture, Suzanne has approached works on paper from a truly impressive variety of angles, through her doctoral scholarship in art history at Yale, her cataloging work in the world of bookselling, and curatorial practice at a number of museums. Most recently, before coming to the Newbery, she was assistant curator in the Department of Prints and Drawings at the Art Institute of Chicago, where her many exhibitions illuminated subjects including devotional prints in a global context, the relationship between ancient sculpture and early prints, and my personal favorite topic of all, Renaissance pop-ups. She is the author of numerous books and articles, including Interactive and Sculptural Printmaking in the Renaissance, which should be forthcoming from Brill any second now. Next, next week. Next week. So exciting. So I'd now like to turn things over to Suzanne, who will introduce our three presenters. for organizing this, this fantastic panel. And uh, before, before I start, since I've actually read the papers, I wanted to say that the, the order of operations is going from big to small. So, so the, uh, I hope this is, all, this is not too much of a spoiler, but the first presentation by, by Megan Cook, we're, we're talking about, about, about that high, a little higher? Life size. Life size. Life six, size. six feet by I'm, four I'm feet. I'm a little short. Yeah, so, six feet by four feet. Six feet by four feet. And then, then we, get, we, we get to a, a uh, Will, Will Hansen, who, who is doing a long series of volumes, which are more folio, and then not quite elephant. Quarto. Really? They're big quarto. Large quarto. Large quarto, yeah. And then we're getting to the very small, very, very relic based, we'll talk about that later, um, Cuthbert uh, Manual, uh, or Gospel. All right, so let's start with our first presenter, Megan um, Cook. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, she she uh, did her her, her, her BA in, the, in um, political science and English literature at the University of Michigan, uh, MA in English and American literature at New York University, and PhD in English li literature at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. So, um, uh, she uh, has been a uh, postdoctoral fellow in English at Bowdoin, and uh, and also near, relatively nearby. Uh, is currently an assistant professor in English at Colby. So, um, that's, yeah. Print Council of America recently visited a number of, of areas in that, in that area, um, in Maine, and I just said, wonderful collections of paper. So, uh, she is the uh, publication, uh, she is the, the author of uh, numer numerous articles, uh, some, some about to come out, some ongoing on, uh, oh, sorry. everything from, from Chaucer and Spencer to uh, uh, 
into uh, paratext in early modern editions of um, The Legend of Big Women. So there's a broad range, and we're really looking forward to her talk today, which is about a very, very idiosyncratic book, manuscript, print thing that I have to, I, I desperately need to go see this now that, now that I've read the paper. And I, Thank you. Um, Thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, there is a handout. I made two dozen copies, which is not going to be enough. Sort of the problem you want to have. But um, Juliet, if you could yeah. send that out and uh, you know make friends uh, with with someone if you need to to look on. Um, so I will dive right into it. I'm not going to get to the stuff on the handout until midway through my talk, so don't, don't stress now. Um, my goal today is to tell you a story about a man by the improbable and memorable name of Craven Ord and the book that he made. Originally, I've been very excited to show you pictures of this book or what remains of it, but the British Library's policy allowing photography in the reading rooms does not, alas, extend to this material. Oops. Which one? <laughs> 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 Look, that's all you get. Uh, the lack of images uh, of the, the primary source materials of my talk today may in fact be an intellectual boon, since it has helped me resist the temptation to offer you little more than a slideshow. Instead, I want to use Mr. Ord and his book, which was in fact a two-volume compendium of, English, of images taken from funerary brasses in English churches, uh, to think about the various ways we might define this session's keyword of scale, and ask how the different facets of this broad category might interact with one another. Ord's work is a particularly good case study with which to explore these issues because the materials he produced are at once large in scale. Um, some of his images, such as this one, are more than six feet tall, um, and in their singularity on quite a small scale. This is true despite the fact that these images are produced by adapting a technique, namely intaglio printing, developed for, multiple produ uh, for production of multiple copies of the same image from a durable, reusable plate. So this is uh, Diderot's images of the, the star press, which would be familiar to many of you. Um, but as a quick reminder, um, intaglio printing, unlike relief printing, in which the ink is applied to raised areas, um, in intaglio printing, grooves or incisions are made in a metal plate. These hold the ink and pressure, um, like so, is applied <laughs> to both the paint and the printing surface to squeeze ink into the paper. It's really hard work, as you can see by my exertion here. Uh, this is typically accomplished, as we see here, by passing the plate and paper through a rolling press. Uh, while the rolling press made possible the production of large images at scale, Ord's work is unique, his book an edition of one. The question of scale runs through antiquarian studies, uh, one of my major areas of research interest, which, at its best, must constantly make a case for the relationship between small, often very local details, and larger historical trends and movements. And when it fails to do so, of course, um, we wind up with a stereotype of the dusty local historian obsessed with dates and ledgers and other minutiae of interest to absolutely no one but himself. So this is a caricature by Thomas Rawlinson. Um, depicting antiquaries um, sort of salivating over the, the opening of the tomb of uh, William I in Westminster Abbey. Uh, logically enough, antiquarians are often collectors, uh, as Angus Vine and other historians have eloquently um, explicated the centrality of material culture to antiquarian studies um, and the close methodological ties between antiquarianism and archaeology uh, really structure uh, the discipline as a whole. 
and every good collector wants to share his or her collection. In the case of Ord's work, he collected something very large, images of the monumental brasses favored as funerary markers by late medieval elites in England. Monumental brasses, such as these, are large sheets of brass or Latin, a brass and copper alloy, generally laid into the paving stones of churches to commemorate elite members of the community interred in the crypt below. The brass is generally cut to the shape of the figure and details of features, hair, clothing, uh, and so on are incised upon it. Brasses have an advantage over three-dimensional monuments in that being flush with the floor, they do not obstruct the use of the space for services, but the fact that they are laid into the floor has generally made them more susceptible to wear and tear over the centuries. This comparative fragility and the lack of any active program of preservation in the 18th century, especially in small, out-of-the-way parish churches, gave a special sense of urgency to enthusiasts like Ord. Such brasses, here's just some more examples, um, had been a constant preoccupation of antiquarians from the 16th century onward, and with good reason. They often include detailed depictions of costume and armor. They portray important heraldic imagery. They list names and dates that may preserve otherwise unattested details of some now defunct noble family's history. Although the pursuit of previously unknown brasses in churches throughout rural England occasioned many a tour among members in the 18th century society of antiquaries, the most elaborate and hence most interesting brasses are essentially life-size. Um, these such brasses are also often located on the floor in dank, dark buildings, um, not well suited to artistic observation. This made documenting them, uh, especially in an age before photography, a specific challenge. Enter Craven Ord, amateur historian. Ord was born in London in 1755. A lifelong enthusiast of all aspects of the English past, he was elected a fellow of the Society of Antiquaries in 1775 at the precocious age of 20. In 1784, he married a, oh, uh, married a wealthy woman by the name of Mary Smith and moved to Greenstead Hall, Essex, where he lived happily for the rest of his life and pursued his interests with gusto, demonstrating a special attentiveness to anything <coughs> having to do with the later Middle Ages. He read widely and collected manuscripts and early printed books. His library, when it was auctioned off after his death in 1832, included a Coverdale Bible, a Shakespeare First Folio, as well as some Albrecht Durer prints, um, and a significant amount on the Irish forgeries of Shakespeare. Um, the star lot in this sale, however, was none of these, but rather the volume that is the subject of my talk today. Talk today. And this is uh, item number one on your handout. It is described as, Monumental Brasses, a most extensive, curious, and highly valuable collection of impressions from ancient monumental brasses taken at the expense and generally under the immediate superintendence of Craven Ord Esquire in two volumes about six feet in height with a stand to hold them. The description continues. This collection of impressions from ancient monumental brasses is most probably matchless. Many of the figures are upwards of six feet in height. The impressions were taken nearly half a century ago. Many of the brasses must have since been defaced and others destroyed. The value of the collection is much enhanced by the greater part of the impressions being accompanied by notices from the pen of Craven Ord Esquire, pointing out whence they were taken. It is to be hoped that this collection will be secured and deposited in some public or private collection to which the antiquary may have access. It forms a most valuable supplement to Goh's sepulchral monuments. The description hints were apparently taken up as this collection sold to the British Museum for 43 pounds and one shilling, equivalent to about 3,600 Great British pounds today. 
The book and another smaller collection, Unbound, were the only lots purchased at this sale by the museum, suggesting that someone made a special trip over from Russell Square to Evans's rooms in Pall Mall. The sepulchral monuments to which the description refers is an important context for understanding Ord's work and its significance in an antiquarian world. Um, and I should note here, for all of this, I will be using images um, taken from Happy Trust from a copy at the, the Getty Institute. Um, as a researcher at a rural, small liberal arts college, um, I am utterly dependent on um, digital access to archives I cannot visit. Um, so I'm thankful for that and encourage all of you to do what you can in your lives to support that. Primarily the work of Richard Gow, a member of both the Society of Antiquaries and the Royal Society, this multi-volume and lavishly illustrated work was published in installments between 1786 and 1799. It seeks to describe and illustrate with detail and accuracy the funerary monuments of ancient families of Britain from the Norman Conquest to the 15th century. Although the volume includes fascinating document, documentation of a wide array of burial sites and monuments, some of which you can see um, on the right there, um, or brasses were a singularly important source for the engravings in sepulchral monuments. Uh, and here are two examples that were taken from um, impressions that are in the British Museum collection, British Library collection. Uh, Go and Ord were friends and spent several happy summers traveling together, particularly in Norfolk, in search of brasses in old churches. When their wanderings uh, bore fruit, Ord would take an impression of the brasses while Go documented their surroundings. Um, Photography, of course, is not an option in the last decades of the 18th century, and so in order to produce engravings like those found in sepulchral monuments, scholars like Go had previously had to rely on their own sketches and drawings, if they were artistically inclined, or the work of hired artists, if they were not. Um, the contemporary practice of brass rubbing, where you lay paper down and rub graphite or something similar over it, does not seem to have been in widespread use at this time. I don't know if it's a paper issue. If anyone has thoughts about that, I would love to hear them. Um, freehand drawings could be frustrating. Um, they were expensive and time-consuming to produce and not ne necessarily accurate. Richard Gow described the difficulties in producing accurate representations of distant monuments as follows. And this is um, uh, number two on your handout. Far am I from being insensible of the difficulty of producing accurate drawings of monuments at a distance from the capital. These guys are also big stars. Um, <laughs> I have experienced too often when I have been obliged to borrow an inferior pencil and have frequently been left without the help, any help at all, where had a virtue, a Grimm, a Carter, or a Bazier, all uh, famous engravers uh, specializing in antiquarian work, assisted, the monuments of distant cathedrals might have been rendered as familiar as those of Westminster Abbey. Nor is it only the distance of draftsmen from the spot, but the little practice of the subject. The walk of fame for modern artists is not sufficiently enlarged. Emulous, emulous of excelling in history, portrait, or landscape, they overlook the unprofitable, no, not less tasteful, walk of antiquity, or, in Grecian and Roman, forget Gothic and more domestic monuments. The unfrequency of the pursuit enhances the price. And there's a lot to unpack in that passage. Ord's approach offers an alternative to this dissatisfying range of options, allowing for accurate reproduction of brasses at scale without reliance on the questionable skills and interpretive decisions of provincial artists. Instead, Ord's brasses, impressions of brasses could be collected in situ and engraved by artists of Go's choosing upon their return to London. Ord's technique fascinates me. Its attention to scale and verisimilitude anticipates photography, which would in due time become the preferred method for documenting historical and archaeological sites, while at the same time relying essentially on the then current techniques of intaglio printing and the rolling press, all in the service of medieval artifacts. 
The Herald and antiquary John Brooke explained Ord's process in a letter to Gao dated 1780, and this is the third item on your handout. I spent Saturday morning with Mr. Ord to look over his impressions from brasses, which are curiously done, and he has a large collection. The manner in which he does them is this. He has French paper damped and kept in a tin case made on purpose to keep it so, printer's ink in a bottle, and a quantity of rags. He inks the brass and then wipes it very clean, lays on the paper, covers it with cloth, and treads upon it, and takes the impression. And he has a man at home to finish them up with printer's ink where the lines have failed. He then cuts the, out the figure and pastes them into a large portfolio with blue paper leaves, large enough to contain a figure of six feet high, and you cannot imagine how beautiful they appear. And uh, when uh, Anthony Grafton was speaking about the kind of aesthetic qualities of antiquarianism in the plenary this morning, um, I thought of this, this final comment, that these are so beautiful and um, I think even moving to the guys who are seeing them. There's a lot to unpack in this account, but in general, the particular, uh, particulars of Ward's process closely resemble intaglio printing on a rolling press, the usual way for printing engravings. The paper is dampened, the ink is used is specifically printer's ink, which needs to be um, viscous enough to spread um, and thick enough to transfer uniformly onto the paper. Um, in other words, it's not something that Ord would normally be carrying around. As an intaglio printing, the ink is spread across the printing surface, which is then wiped clean, the indentations in the brass now serving as reservoirs for ink. Uh, damp paper is laid over the printed surface, and there's an amazing, um, too long to quote here, but uh, entry in Ord's journal where the paper dried out and they had to send um, a coachman to dip it in the Thames to uh, wet it again so they could take their, their brasses. Uh, so it's then covered in a blanket. Uh, instead of being passed through a rolling press, however, in this case, the impression is obtained by walking over the preparation. Since footsteps would not be able to produce the kind of even having press, a pressure, ugh, press, pressure that a press would, it is not surprising that Ord required a man at home to finish them up. So on the one hand, this is a remarkably ingenious way of documenting some important but challenging materials, an example of what we might today call technology transfer. On the other hand, there is a historical affinity here. The first engraved plates for printing were produced by goldsmiths, the late medieval craftsmen who, among other things, would have produced the very brasses that Ord seeks to document. More than two dozen brasses documented by Ord appear in sepulchral monuments. Um, in plates prepared uh, by the noted engraver James Bazir. Go publicly acknowledges Ord's assistance. Uh, in, the first, in the preface to the first volume of the Sepulchral Monuments, he writes, this is the fourth uh, quote on your handout, I cannot close this preface without expressing my great obligations to my friend and fellow laborer, Craven Ord Esquire, who, with indefatigable assiduity, by a process by which he may be, almost be deemed the inventor, has formed a collection of monuments rolled off from the brasses themselves, thus displaying their original dimensions and lines, from which 15 engravings in this work have been reduced, and plate 11, wait for it, is an impression actually taken off by the rolling press from a brass of the Wakefield family at Leatheringham, together with some shields of arms from another in the same church. Go, like Brooke, is impressed with the novelty of Ford's methods, and his ability to remember render these brasses, quote, displaying their original dimensions and lines. In other words, his ability to copy them at scale. However, even more remarkable than the fine engravings produced from Ord's monuments are the plates in sepulchral monuments, quote, actually taken off by the rolling press. Uh, the term actually here tips the reader off to the audacity of what's been done. Uh, while Go mentions only one here, uh, three plates in sepulchral monuments were produced this way 
by passing 15th century brasses through an 18th century star press. They ink them and they put them through the press. Um, the most striking of these is the one on the right here, which depicts um, a young-looking knight bareheaded and in armor. Um, and I want to emphasize its size. Um, I can't really show you. Uh, this, is a, this is a large, it's a, the sepulchral monuments is a double folio. Um, these pages are twice the size of that, right? So you unroll them and they're, they're, that one's probably five feet and that one's a little bit shorter. Its large size um, dramatically renders the source material and evokes Go and Ord's proximity to it. In its scale and verisimilitude, this is as accurate a reproduction as possible. While Go claims that the brasses used for this part of the project were already damaged and detached, a 15th century engraving being passed through an 18th century rolling press is um, really something to contemplate, even by the standards of Georgian antiquaries' often intimate engagements with the material relics of the past. In addition to supplying material for Go's book, Ort's collected brasses formed a significant and famous aspect of his library. In 1780, six years before the first part of Sepulchral Monuments appeared in print, Go wrote to his friend John Tyson, an artist and engraver, describing a visit to London and reports, I have had a treat this morning at Mr. Ord's, who, in a book of blue paper and deal boards above six feet long, has classed a series of brasses most nicely taken off. Like others in the Society of Antiquaries Circle who discuss Go's Ord's work, Gauss stresses here that the impressions are bound together and that the resulting book is very large, six feet tall. The bookness of Ord's book seems to have been a part of its fame. The bound collection, as I sold, as I mentioned, sold for more than 40 pounds at auction, but a similar collection, unbound, sold for only three. Ord's collection of brasses is large in both dimension and scope, but to what end? While individual brasses were useful for projects like sepulchral monuments, when they were bound together in a book form, it must have been incredibly difficult to peruse them, either for research purposes or aesthetic appreciation. Ord was proud of his brasses, specifically their scale, but he seems insensible to the fact that their size is not at all appropriate for the codex format. <laughs> this is to say, as special as Ord's book was, its scale contributed both to its novelty and its demise. While the lot sold by Evans describes a bound book with an accompanying stand, there is little evidence of this presentation in the materials that survive today. Today, Ord's brasses are stored in a series of flat boxes in the manuscript department of the British Library. I was not able to find any trace or documentation of the stand um, or of the previous existence of a bound volume. Uh, this, to me, suggests that, not surprisingly, a six-foot book bound in blue deal boards uh, was not the most practical format for either the storage or display of these materials in a museum context. Today, Ort's work is largely forgotten. Within a half century of his death, the ascendancy of new forms of illustration, like lithography and photography, would make the kind of laborious processes that produce these images largely obsolete. Nonetheless, his curious and indeed ingenious processes fulfilled a specific need at a specific moment in the history of both antiquarian studies in Britain and the history of text technologies. In its time, as comments by Go and others make clear, Ord's method was an innovation. The story of Ord and his brasses cast lights on several different facets of scale. Scale as a question of dimension or size interacts with scale as a question of repetition or reproducibly at every step along the way. The brasses are large, making them difficult to copy. By adapting a technology of mass reproduction, Ord can copy them at scale in terms of dimensions, although his, project, his product thus remains similar. Goh's use of actual 15th century engravings as plates in sepulchral monuments is one way of getting around this problem, 
Although the limitations of this method, namely uh, wear and tear and the fact that most brasses remain bolted to the floor of churches, uh, are very clear. At a codicological level, Ord's brasses produced a single and singular book. While the uniqueness of its content made it valuable, made it valuable its impractical scale as a bibliographic object meant that its existence as a book was limited. While the story of Ord and his brasses uh, is unique, his techniques, as far as I can tell, were not uh, taken up by his, his colleagues, the questions of size, value, and reproducibility that it invokes are not. My hope is that this specific case study will provide us with a chance to discuss the interaction of these factors and the material techniques that help to shape them on a broader, yes, I will say it, scale. Thank you. <laughs> discussion that yes uh, I'm very happy to introduce my relatively new colleague uh, Will Hansen the Newberry uh, we'll do this in the same order and I wanted to mention that uh, all three of our presenters today have of course all taken our book school courses so that, that, that is right at the top of Will's uh, education list here so I wanted to, to, to bring that to the fore again uh, so he uh, let's see uh, he, he got his uh, bachelor's of arts degree at uh, distinction as an English major. Uh, apparently, also did the mark history there, uh, which I highly approve of. At uh, University of Nebraska Lincoln, uh, got his uh, uh, library science degree at the University of Illinois Champaign Urbana, uh, and uh, apparently has spent what was this almost almost a decade at the Newberry on and off. Uh, uh, part of which overlapped with the, uh, the library school experience and. Uh, of 05 to 07, and then, then went to the brief detour to Duke University as an assistant curator of collections there, um, and I, yeah, which is a wonderful, wonderful collection, which uh, I'll visit, and uh, then came back as the uh, director of reader services and curator of Americana at the Newberry, and I have to say he's written one of the most entertaining research guides you will ever read online for the uh, relating to a small Hamilton uh, exhibition that they, they did a few a few months ago when the, the musical moved into town and uh, if, and it's, it leads you directly to to all, all, all the documents you could ever want to to consult on Hamilton including the um, the Reynolds pamphlet my personal favorite and uh, but his, his real expertise is in is in Melville and uh, curator of the Melville collection among other many many other things and um, is working on an exhibition uh, in a couple of years. So, and we're and today we're uh, he'll be he'll be talking about uh, I actually don't even have the title right here, but um, talk talking about an, an amazingly expanded book in the collection. I'm going to be talking about possible to find, uh, as well as the public services staff 
uh, who made them available to me and others for safe use and for photography. I am lucky in that regard. I have images of, of these books. Um, so the title of my talk is Extra Illustrated Editions, The Case of Irving's Life of George Washington, 1889. I added the question mark late, so that does not appear in your program. <laughs> the idea of an extra illustrated edition sounds oxymoronic. We generally think of or even define extra illustrated books as unique examples created by bibliophiles for their own libraries. They are distortions or enhancements of an example of an edition, not exemplars themselves of an edition. However, publishers and print dealers were promoting and preparing volumes for extra illustration, also known as grangerization or private illustration, even before the commonly agreed upon start date for formal extra illustration practices with James Granger himself in 1769. By the late 19th century, extra illustration was a popular bibliophilic phenomenon and enough of a market existed for these labor-intensive and elaborate volumes for publishers to market some books as already extra illustrated, with their text enhanced by an added material or prepared expressly to be so enhanced. This paper takes up the mysterious example of the special extra illustrated sets of Washington Irving's Life of George Washington issued by G.P. Putnam's Sons. At least four, and likely seven, of these extra illustrated sets are documented in auction sales. Three are in publicly available collections, the Newberry Library, the Crotch Library at Cornell University, and the Benjamin Franklin Collection at Yale University. I have found no vein of archival material to mine on the publication of these volumes in the fragmentary available records of Putnam's or papers of G.P. and G.H. Putnam themselves. Instead, combining the internal evidence of the three publicly available sets with contextual material, I will discuss what I have learned and what is still unknown about this pseudo-edition's creation. Further, by exploring the state of extra illustration and related publishing and collecting practices in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, I hope to help us better understand the supply and demand for such illustrated works and the many hands involved in their creation. So, what is Putnam's Extra Illustrated Life of George Washington? The quote-unquote special extra illustrated sets each bear a special title page, dated 1889, identifying them as five volumes extended to 10 by the insertion of 500 engravings and 50 autographs. These sets are remarkable for the significance of the autograph editions, including original letters, which I will discuss later. There are also some interesting prints, a couple of examples of which I'll show here briefly. And textual and textile ephemera. There's a newspaper in the Yale copy. Here's a nice uh, woven silk Stephen graph of Washington. The title pages give the unavoidable impression that they were sold with these additional manuscripts and plates by the publisher in 1889, <coughs> rather than completed by individual enthusiasts. That very well might be so to a large degree, however, a closer look complicates this belief. I was put on the case of these sets by the presence of a set at the Newberry, and by a note in the library's bulletin in 1955 announcing its donation and speculating that up to 110 sets containing original Washington and Jefferson letters might have been issued by Putnam's. Washington Irving's books were important properties for G.P. Putnam, and the firm published the first edition of The Life of George Washington, Irving's final book, in five volumes from 1855 to 1859. As Irving's bibliographer Edwin T. Bowden put it, Putnam, quote, exploited the work to his full ability, trying nearly every publishing form then thought of to capitalize on the author's popularity and the appeal of the subject matter to book buyers of all classes. This array of issues included 110, quote, unquote, quarto, large paper copies with illustrations. In 1859, Putnam's catalog cited by Bowden offers this set in sheets for $50, 
bound in full leather for $85, a lot of money. At least three of these known copies of the 1889 Special Extra Illustrated sets are built upon the sheets and plates for this issue, including the Newberry copy. The other known copies of the Special Extra Illustrated sets are built upon one of the 300 copies of the text sheets and plates for the Centennial Edition of 1889. The five-volume Centennial Edition was offered for sale in 1889 at $50. Here's an ad for that. Special Extra Illustrated sets of this issue include the Cornell and Yale copies. Contemporary advertisements, like this one, announcing the Centennial Edition do not mention Extra Illustrated sets for sale. The bindings of the three examined sets are not uniform, but bear many similarities and are almost certainly by the same bindery, James MacDonald of New York, as identified on the Newberry copy, which you can see here. I'm going to quickly show you the bindings of each of the sets that I've examined. This is the Newberry copy's binding. Here's the Yale copy. Here's the Cornell copy. The same United States shield stamp is employed on the spines of the Newberry and Yale copies, which you can see the top two images are of here, as well as, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, and also it seems on the copy sold by Swan Galleries in 1975, along with the Eagle stamp on the Cornell copy. So this is the Cornell copy's stamp on the spines. Uh, the two black and white images are from the Swan Galleries sale catalog from 1975. Oops. Likewise, the quality and sequence of manuscript decks or illustrations in each of the examens... Oops, uh, sorry, lost my place. There we go. The first volumes of the Cornell and Newberry copies bear added calligraphic title pages, which seem likely to be by the same calligrapher, which are also dated 1889. Likewise, the quality and sequence of manuscript extra illustrations in each of the examen sets is similar but not uniform, and auction records for the unexamined copies indicate that their manuscript editions also follow, follow similar patterns. The relative importance of the manuscript items varies widely within each set, but is similar from set to set. Many of the items, particularly for the names below the marquee, so to speak, are signed receipts, partly printed governmental forms such as customs documents, military appointments or perfunctory orders, and other legal or business documents. However, each set also includes some substantive or even important letters. I won't go into too much detail on the manuscripts themselves, themselves, but I've compiled a list of the specific manuscripts in each volume of the examined sets as an appendix to this paper, which I'm happy to give to anybody who happens to be interested. Um, the first manuscript added to volume one of each set is an original George Washington letter. Two examples uh, are here from the Cornell and Yale copies. Each set also includes a Washington Irving manuscript. The Newberry and Yale copies each include a page of manuscript draft from his life of George Washington, which are shown here. All three sets also include documents signed and or written by 19 of the same revolutionary figures, including Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Hancock, Alexander Hamilton, and James Madison. There is much additional overlap, but this brief survey hopes I, serves, I hope, to indicate the similarity and the quality of the additions. It also most certainly begs the questions, where did these manuscripts come from? Who was supplying them? And who was inserting them into the volumes? It might seem a stretch to imagine a publisher taking on the seemingly extravagant expense of commissioning such volumes. However, there are precedents. Lucy Peltz discusses the 18th century case of three surviving extra-illustrated three-volume sets of Clarendon's History of the Rebellion of 1702-04 to 04, 
quote-unquote consistent in handling and appearance, and apparently assembled and sold by John Bullfinch, a seller of prints and books. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there are many related contemporary or near-contemporary examples of publishers inserting material extraneous to the printed sheets and plates of the text at hand. The period from 1890 to 1939 sees the development of the leaf book as a genre, with John B. Chalmers recording 82 examples in these five decades, and only five examples prior to 1890. It is also the heyday of the particular varietal of leaf book most closely related to our sets, the author's autograph or manuscript edition. Chalmers reports 10 examples of editions of author's works issued with an original leaf of manuscript between 1903 and 1930, with edition sizes in the hundreds. It is a predominantly American genre, with only two English and eight American examples recorded. Putnam's published an author's autograph edition of Washington Irving's works in 40 volumes from 1895 to 97, each with a page of original manuscript. There was a well-developed market for autographs and manuscript items targeted at extra illustrators by the 1890s. The Revolutionary Era and Irving's Life of George Washington, in particular, were among the most popular segments of this market. Indeed, in the most extensive review of the collections of extra illustrators, Daniel Treadwell's monograph on privately illustrated books, A Plea for Bibliomania, Irving's Washington is the work that appears most often as an object of extra illustration. Furthermore, there was consistently more manuscript material from the Revolutionary Era, excuse me, considerably more manuscript material from the Revolutionary Era and the early years of the Republic available in the 1880s to 1920s, and prices were no more, nowhere near today's rates. In 1900, the Philadelphia firm of Stan B. Henkels, a leading authority on George Washington materials, <coughs> held an auction of items, quote unquote, gathered by Washington G. Craddock Esquire for illustrating the large paper edition of Irving's Life of Washington. The sale also included one of the 110 large paper copies of the 1855-59 edition, described as follows, another copy may not be had for love or money. Those which we know of are either in the course of being extra illustrated or are bound with edges cut. The plates are in a separate package, ready for insertion. The offerings in the Craddock sale include 28 autograph letters in 27 lots, four with Washington signatures. If we guess that perhaps 10 special extra illustrated sets were to be issued by Putnam's, assembling a group of 500 manuscript items signed by figures of the revolution mentioned in Irving's work, including 10 George Washington signatures, was well within the realm of possibility in the 1880s or 1890s, particularly in a place like New York City with a network of antiquarian print, autograph, and book dealers. The majority of the documents would have been quite affordable. However, a closer look at the illustrations added to the volumes makes clear that the sets were not issued, at least not in bound form, in 1889. All three examined sets include prints dated from the 1900s. Two of the three feature prints from the 1910s. These later prints include etchings and other prints by Albert and Max Rosenthal, one of which is shown here. The date is 1901. Illustrations from the 1906 Franklin Bicentennial number of the American Printer and other similar prints. Some of the post-1889 extra illustrations appear in more than one set. I could trace no records of sales in dealer or auction catalogs for any of these sets to earlier than 1922, when one appears, followed by two more in 1923. Finally, auction records for specific letters found in sets of the life of George Washington show that at least a few of the manuscript items must have been added to the volumes long after the 1889 date on the title pages. 
For instance, one of the two Washington letters in volume one of the Cornell copy, a 1771 letter to John Polson, was sold in 1920. The other Washington letter in that volume to James Butler in 1793 was sold in 1932. On the other hand, it is worth noting that the Cornell copy has 52 manuscript editions, the Yale copy 51, so it is just possible that each copy was originally issued with 50 manuscripts and later supplemented with the manuscripts rearranged therein. Obviously, this calls for a closer look at the physical format of the extra illustrations. Could they have been added to a volume already bound, or would addition necessitate rebinding or indicate that the sheets were not bound until much later than 1889? The mounts of the manuscript editions and some of the added plates in the Life of George Washington sets are similar. Typically, a plain rule showing the dimensions of the item added on thick beige stock. You can see an example of that here. That's actually a very neat uh, invitation to uh, Mr. and Mrs. Washington's uh, the White House. Uh, in the Newberry and Cornell sets, the manuscripts are most often pasted to a short stub, which is then tipped onto the backing, which is what's being shown here. In the Yale set, they are most often inlaid. In the Yale and Newberry sets, the plates bear notations on the, on the versos indicating their position by volume and page. This appears less often in the Cornell set, but the penciling is lighter and may have been erased in some cases. The romantic, or depending on your view of extra illustration, sinister view of the lone collector assembling bricolage volumes from scratch, folding and cutting and pasting in his study as a form of self-expression and aesthetic appreciation, was probably always more the exception rather than the rule. Certainly most collectors would reserve the hunting and collecting of the plates and other material for their own pleasure. Very often, though, the labor of preparing the extra illustrations for their chosen text, chosen text would be outsourced. In an article for the book buyer in 1902, Lyda Rose McCabe surveys the history in the United States of inlaying prints in mounts to the required size for extra illustrated volumes. She begins by discussing a nearly bygone era when extra illustrators, quote, were wont to entrust treasured volumes and costly prints to specialists without restriction as to time, taste, or expense. Unlike her present day of 1902, when, quote, collectors make their own print selections and leave only the actual work of inlaying to the professional. McCabe primarily profiles the work of Augustus Toteberg, George Trent, and Charles Lawrence, all based in Brooklyn, and credits them as the, quote, pioneer trio of inlaying in America. McCabe discusses the exceptional work done by professional inlayers, but also goes on to report, quote, every bookbinder nowadays includes inlaying and extra illustration in his regular business. All of this serves to illustrate that by the early 20th century, extra illustration was integrated into the work of binderies across the country. The collapse of this aspect of the book trades in the United States very likely coincided with the Great Depression. I must confess that I remain flummoxed by some details as I attempt to construct the likeliest narrative of how the special extra illustrated sets might have been issued, sold, and distributed. Rather than straining for a single theory that I cannot prove, I'll lay out some of the possibilities, hopefully working in some of the interesting points that we can take away from our examination of these sets for our understanding of the history of the book and of extra illustrated books in general. So option A, Putnam's did it. The popularity among extra illustrators of the large paper issue of 1855-59 and of the 1889 centennial edition could have indicated to Putnam's the possible profit to be made at the so-called ultra-premium level for a certain number of extra illustrated sets, perhaps 10. The infrastructure was certainly in place in New York City and nearby Brooklyn in the early 1900s to make unsold sheets available for extra illustration, 
to partner with one or more print and autograph dealers to source and supplement the plates already in place for each with 3,000 or so additional, mostly cheap, prints and 500 manuscript items, to have these inlaid to size by one or more of the specialists in the area, and to have the James McDonald bindery specializing in deluxe bindings for the trade make a bespoke binding for each within general specifications for the style and price of binding. In this scenario, the later prints and manuscripts would have to have been added by individual buyers and the cost of discs and rebinding taken on by them. There is perhaps some circumstantial evidence for this in the Newberry copy. Many of the volumes have added blank pages at the end so that the bindings have uniform thickness. These pages could be removed or used as mounts to add more extra illustrations. Option B, Putnam's and the collectors did it together. <laughs> On the other hand, the later dates of some of the added illustrations and sales of manuscript items could mean that the sets were simply issued by Putnam's unbound in 1889. Putnam's could source relatively inexpensive manuscript and visual extra illustrations, and their owners added and removed particularly particular extra illustrations to their liking. In this scenario, the similarities in inlaying and binding would be simply coincidental or indicative of the popularity of McDonald in the extra illustration community. Each of the sets does bear some marks of individuality. The unique additions to the Yale set, for, it is, for instance, emphasize the iconography of the revolution. Here's uh, a prospectus for the 1823 engraving from John Trumbull's famous painting, The Declaration of Independence. Here in that same copy is a portrait of Tadeusz Kosciuszko, a Polish patriot of the revolution, in pencil. Um, as well as uh, other ephemera such as silk ribbons from the 1840s bearing Washington's image. The Cornell copy has the largest number of manuscripts by and about Washington and Jefferson specifically, four examples of which are shown here. The Newberry copy uh, has what is probably the single best manuscript in any of the sets. Uh, the letter from George Washington to Henry Knox offering condolences on the death of Knox's child. And a well-grounded group of manuscripts overall, including the only Adam, John Adams letter among the three sets, and a good Jefferson letter. Despite these differences, though, the similarities are striking. While each, of course, holds a unique aggregation of unique items, there are also clearly limited variations on a distinct theme, a codification of what an extra illustrated set of Irving's Life of George Washington should contain. The presence of the uniform title page and similarity of bindings are what keeps one from concluding that these are each the separate product of an individual collector. In this scenario in particular, the life of George Washington sets would represent a case of a kind of publisher-collector creative collaboration. Putnam's wanted to capitalize on, show appreciation for, and participate in the aesthetics of the, quote, private illustrator, and stake their claim to a lucrative if low-value market in which their products were quite popular. Extra illustrators wanted to participate in the creation of their own books, which they would value as trophy room, wunderkammer, reliquary, archive, and or picture show. They could and very likely did add and remove manuscripts and prints, putting a distinctive stamp on their purchase. Option C, the collectors did it. Yet another possibility. Perhaps the title page figures of 500 engravings and 50 autographs were aspirational and Putnam's provided a special extra illustrated set title page upon inquiry by individual extra illustrators who often worked toward a goal of 500 plates and 50 autographs or by a dealer. And no extra illustrations were actually provided by the publisher. I have not found any advertising related to the offering of special extra illustrated sets by Putnam's. If that absence persists, it would seem a compelling argument for this scenario. 
Gabrielle Dean, in her article, Every Man His Own Publisher, Extra Illustration and the Dream of the Universal Library, discusses some implications of extra illustration for our digital or information age and their relevance as early hypertextual devices. I would add to her observations there that extra illustration and this scenario in particular for Irving's Life of George Washington remind me of video or role-playing games. Irving and then Putnam's encoded a quest of sorts for collectors to complete, gathering icons that stand for the real-world importance of the United States, in much the same way video game companies or a role-playing game's dungeon master will provide constraints within which players can perform creatively. The private illustrator of the 1890s is really not so different from the Pokemon Go player of today, perhaps <laughs> in this way alone. <laughs> so, in closing, extra illustrated books are complex objects, quite obviously. Their hybridity, rarity, and liminality cause anxiety among all of archivists, art historians, curators, librarians, conservators, and bibliographers, leading to their historic neglect in bibliographies, library catalogs, and other sites of description. However, they also create great interest among all these groups and more, and I would simply encourage further exploration of and collaboration on such volumes for all of these, from all of these perspectives. Collaborative multimedia works, extra illustrated books belong among the disciplines and can only be fully understand, understood between them rather than within any single one. Thank you. and political science from Concordia University and a Master of Information with a specialization in Library and Information Science at the University of Toronto. And uh, she has spent, looks like she has really mined the depths of all the library collections uh, there, uh, most, most extensively and uh, recently at the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library, uh, uh, the Hart House uh, Library, uh, John Kelly Library, uh, John Graham Library, uh, and uh, my personal favorite of the list, this, the Center for Reformation and Renaissance Studies. So that sounds like a very interesting uh, cataloging project. And again, spent some time in her book school. Um, she's uh, currently the Special Collections Librarian at, at Thomas Fisher, and uh, has, ha has put together some very interesting sounding exhibitions and uh, will, be, uh, will be talking to us today about uncovering the St. Cuthbert Gospel Binding. and thanks so much for having me. Um, today I'm going to be speaking to you about the binding that covers the St. Cuthbert Gospel. This binding was probably created in the 7th or early 8th century, which makes it the oldest surviving example of Western decorated leather book binding. As you may notice, the binding is in surprisingly pristine condition after having survived for over 1,300 years, but its miraculous longevity is due to the fact that it lay undisturbed for centuries after it was buried in a coffin with St. Cuthbert at Lindisfarne, Northumbria, sometime after his death in 687. While so many other leather bindings from this period have completely deteriorated, the St. Cuthbert Gospel serves as a remarkable example of what may have been the designs, materials, and conventions of its time. In particular, the intricate design on the upper cover, where the leather has been molded over certain materials in order to create this raised figure eight pattern, 
has captured the imagination of bookbinding scholars as there are no other documented instances of this kind of raised design on a leather binding during the 7th century, nor in many of the centuries that would follow. Around the same time period, we do see this kind of relief effect in what are known as treasure bindings through the carving of more substantial materials like ivory, silver, gold, or wood. However, we would not see this difficult decorative technique gain any sort of popularity in leather bindings again until the 19th century. As a result, the circumstances surrounding the creation of this binding remain shrouded in some degree of mystery. Scholars have long debated the potential identity of the binder, the cultural origin of the design, and how exactly the upper cover was constructed. Today I will consider the last of those questions, and I will attempt to shed some light upon the practicalities of how this fascinating binding was created. Because of the fragile nature of the binding, the possibility of performing invasive tests has been out of the question. As a result, many bookbinding scholars have put forward their best estimations as to how this effect might have been achieved. Some have suggested materials that might have been attached to the upper cover and then covered in leather. Others have guessed, based on their knowledge of bookmaking practices of the time, about what the construction process might have looked like. But none, to my knowledge, have gone so far as to test out their hypotheses through practical experimentation. So I was inspired to test out some of these theories I had read in the bookbinding literature about how the upper cover of the St. Cuthbert Gospel might have been created. In particular, I first set out to determine what materials might have been glued to the upper board and then covered in leather in order to create this raised pattern. And secondly, I hope to determine what kind of glue would have been used for this purpose. So let's begin by exploring a few of the hypotheses that have been put forward by bookbinding historians about the construction of this binding. In 1954, T.C. Peterson suggested quite confidently that there may not, in fact, be any materials underneath the leather, but that the relief design was achieved simply by tracing and retracing the outline of the design. However, later scholars tend to dismiss this assumption, as it would be nearly impossible to trace the leather to such an extent that it would produce this raised pattern. Instead, most contemporary scholarship, for instance, in this article by Elsie Ellis, simply assumes that there is some, uh, some unknown material under the leather, and that to achieve this raised effect, the leather was most likely dampened, stretched over the board, and worked around the cord. Not many hazard to guess what sort of additional material, aside from the cords, was also attached to the boards and covered in leather, but there certainly must have been other materials involved, as it's clear that the spade-shaped central ornament and the raised circles in the center of the figure eights were not made by cords. Um, only Howard Nixon and Miriam Foote have ventured to guess at what this additional material might have been. They suggest that gesso was probably used to create the various shapes. So considering the dearth of information about what materials might have been used to create this design, this seemed like a good place to begin experimenting. So I decided to build seven partial models of the upper cover in order to test out a number of materials that would have been inexpensive and readily available to a binder in 7th century England. Since gesso had been suggested by Nixon and Foote, this seemed to be a logical starting point. But in, adi in addition, I also decided to try using glass, clay, plaster of Paris, wood, wax, and nuts, in addition to cords, to create this raised design. I doubt that the binder would have actually used nuts, since they would have decomposed over time, but I, that one I just added in out of fun and for the curiosity of it. Um, <laughs> Before I go any further, I think this is a good time to acknowledge the inherent limitations in attempting to recreate the circumstances of a 7th century bookbinder. Over 1300 years later, it is impossible to imagine and take into account every possible detail or to ensure that every aspect of the construction is precisely the same as it would have been originally. 
But I do think that if we're careful to keep these limitations in mind and to interpret the results of these kinds of practical experiments in conjunction with strong textual evidence from primary sources, we can still stand to learn a great deal from this kind of exercise. So first, the gesso. I consulted a number of medieval arts treatises to find a good recipe. The main sources I used were Theophilus, Cennini, and Merrifield. Each of these works suggests recipes with slightly different units of measure, but they all involve the same key components. Slaked plaster of Paris, high glue, and warm honey. So after a bit of trial and error, I was able to use these materials in varying amounts to produce a gesso of a good consistency. In order to raise the shapes to the appropriate height, I had to apply a number of layers of gesso, each time waiting for the previous layer to dry. Uh, despite numerous trials, I found that the gesso just did not lend itself well to being built up to any height above what we would see in manuscript illumination. When you try to build it up too high, it just sort of eventually caves in on itself. So I arrived at the conclusion that while Nixon and Foote's guess was a very reasonable one, since gesso was being used in manuscripts at the time, unfortunately I don't think it would have been a suitable material to use for this raised design. So I decided to move on to explore some of the other potential materials. Um, at this point, we must also keep in mind that regardless of what exact materials might have been used by the binder, the materials and the cords would have needed to be glued to the board before they were covered in leather so that they wouldn't slide around during the covering process. This brings me to the other main question I hope to answer, what kind of glue might have been used for this purpose? Now, in order to explain the various choices, you'll have to permit me a brief digression into the exciting world of bookbinding adhesives. <laughs> uh, considering the vital role that glue plays in the construction of a book, surprisingly little work has been done in terms of documenting the various kinds of adhesives that have been used in bookmaking throughout history. In most of the literature about bookbinding history, scholars will refer to glue, paste, and adhesives, but often won't go any further to qualify what they mean. This becomes problematic when one discovers that there were, in fact, many different types of adhesive being, adhesives being used in the medieval period, just as there are today, and that each of these glues had different fundamental properties and would have been used for different steps in the bookmaking process. As any practicing bookbinder will tell you, there are significant differences between something like today's white glue, for example, and a starch-based paste. The white glue dries very quickly, not leaving the binder much time to work. It isn't considered reversible, and so it isn't often used in conservation work. It does not dry and clear and can leave a residue, making it only suitable for things like reinforcing book spines, and certainly not for attaching leather to boards. Wheat paste, by contrast, which is made simply by mixing wheat starch with hot water, is very well suited to the task of attaching leather to boards. This is due to its low tack and pliability. It takes a long time to dry, so it's particularly useful for allowing the binder time to mold the leather around the corners of boards or over things like end caps. It also dries clear, and so it won't stain the leather. Scholars have been able to trace the use of wheat paste back to ancient Egypt, and I was also able to find a couple of references to it in the medieval arts treatises. So for these and for a number of other reasons I unfortunately don't have time to delve into here, uh, it has been generally agreed upon that wheat paste would likely have been used to attach leather to boards during the medieval period. However, the very properties that make wheat paste so useful for working with leather would have made it completely inadequate for the purpose of attaching the potential raised materials to the board of the St. Cuthbert Gospel binding. For this purpose, the binder would have required a glue with significantly stronger tack and faster drying properties so that the materials would be stuck solidly to the surface and would not shift around when the leather soaked in wheat paste was being molded over them. Despite the hundreds of pages that have been dedicated to analyzing the sewing structure, the boards, the leather, and so on, 
None to my, no one to my knowledge has directly addressed the question of what adhesives, aside from wheat paste, would have been used in the construction of the St. Cuthbert Gospel binding. So in order to consider this question, I first had to figure out what kinds of glues would have been known to our 7th century bookbinder. To do this, I again turned to the medieval arts treatises. You'll see that each of these originate from later time periods, but unfortunately we don't have any remaining arts manuals from the 7th century, and as such, these are the best records of the kinds of practices that might have been in use at the time that the St. Cuthbert Gospel was created. After, after performing a survey of the, of the adhesives mentioned in these works, it became clear that they were made in three major ways. By boiling hides or parchment, by boiling fish bones or bladders, and by mixing cheese with lime, meaning quicklime or calcium oxide. For the sake of simplicity, I will refer to these as hive glue, fish glue, and cheese glue. <laughs> <laughs> um, I decided to buy or create the closest approximations to these adhesives as I could, to use these to attach my experimental materials to the model boards. Luckily, specialty woodworking stores still sell both hive glue and fish glue. And after significant correspondence with the manufacturers, I was assured that these glues had no artificial additives and are still being made using virtually the same process as they would have used in the medieval period. However, I could not find a modern version of cheese glue, so by following a recipe from the Theophilus Treaties, I was able to create a cheese glue in my kitchen, and I will talk about the details of that process a little later on. <laughs> so now with my three potential glues, I attached the various materials to the boards. Um, and then they were left to dry overnight. I decided to work with only partial models of the upper cover design simply for the sake of expediency, since creating the whole design six times over would have taken much longer. The board is birch wood, which we know was used in the St. Cuthbert Gospel. The leather has worn away on the insides of the boards, which has allowed researchers to determine the type of wood. The leather of the original binding is goatskin, but good goatskin is quite expensive now, so I chose to use a vegetable tanned sheepskin for the purpose of this experiment. In terms of the tanning process, vegetable tanning is also about as close as you could get to what would have been done in the medieval period. Uh, I then pasted out the leather using wheat, wheat paste, and once it was soft and pliable, I used it to cover each of the models. During this process, the only major issue I encountered was with the plaster of Paris. I found that once it had dried, it became brittle and broke off quite easily from the board. But all the other experimental materials served their purpose well, and I was able to cover them with the leather quite easily. So at this point, unfortunately, I was unable to determine which of these materials might have been possibly used to create the raised shapes. To be honest, I was expecting that I would encounter more problems with some of the materials, and I hoped that, that would have disqualified some of the possibilities. But when the leather dried and was securely attached to the boards, I was forced to put aside the question of these possible raised materials because I was met with a rather startling discovery where the glue was concerned. So please forgive the crudeness of these models. They're not made to look nice. <laughs> Um, as you can see, the fish glue has seeped completely through, staining the good side of the leather, and the cheese glue has reacted with one of the other elements in the models and has turned the leather a dramatic dark color. The materials attached with hide glue demonstrated no negative reaction. These results, while significant, nevertheless raised a series of additional questions. Maybe the leather I used was too thin, and fish glue would have worked perfectly well with a thicker or more darkly colored leather. Uh, the reaction with the cheese glue was even more puzzling. Maybe it was reacting to a certain modern element contained in the wood, wax, cord, or in the leather or wheat paste I was using, and perhaps the medieval versions of these elements would have worked fine with the cheese glue. In order to address these questions, I performed a second experiment where I used a leather as close as possible to the original binding leather, 
a vegetable tanned goat skin, dyed dark red, and paired to the same thickness as the original, which was two millimeters. I also chose to take the various raised shape materials completely out of the equation in order to figure out whether they might have played a role in the results of the first experiment. I applied the hide glue, fish glue, and cheese glue directly to the board. I left them to dry overnight, and then pasted out the leather with wheat paste and applied it to the board. Uh, and I also performed the same experiment with the lighter colored leather in order to compare these results. As it turns out, both the leather and the raised shape materials appear to have had no bearing on the results of the first experiment. While the dark color of the goatskin kind of obscures the results, you can see that the fish glue has again seeped completely through the leather, the cheese glue has turned the leather black, and the hide glue has caused no negative reaction. But at this point, the question also remained, was it the fish and cheese glue themselves that were causing these effects on the leather, or was it maybe their interaction with the wheat paste that, that caused this discoloration? To answer this question, I performed a final experiment where I took the wheat paste completely out of the equation and applied samples of hide glue, fish glue, and cheese glue directly to the underside of a piece of leather. I used the lighter sheepskin here just so that the results would be more visible. As you can see, it doesn't look like the interaction with the wheat paste factored into these results either. The fish glue and cheese glue themselves, independent of any other factor, are what cause these surprising reactions. So after seeing this, you may be surprised to learn that in Il Libro dell'Arte, Cennini recommends the use of fish glue to mend fine paper, wooden, or bone objects. But I think we can safely say that fish glue would not have been a wise choice for the binder of the St. Cuthbert Gospel. Based on this experiment, I think we can also conclude that cheese glue would have been an equally poor choice. But the fact that it was also mentioned quite often in the medieval arts treatises led me to think that this very strange reaction deserved a little more research particularly in order to figure out whether my modern version of the cheese glue differed from the medieval glue in a way that might have caused this reaction. So according to Theophilus, cheese glue is made by soaking soft cheese in water for a period of time, then grinding the cheese into a powder. Water and quicklime are then added to the cheese powder to produce the glue. In order to make this glue using modern materials, after some research I discovered that the same end can be achieved by starting with milk. I heated the milk and then combined it with an acid, in this case I used white vinegar. This caused the milk to separate or curdle into curds and whey. I discarded the whey and ground up the curds, which are similar to the soft cheese described by Theophilus, to form the base for the glue. The next step is to add an alkaline agent to the curds to produce the glue. Theophilus suggests quicklime for this purpose, and to my surprise, I was actually able to buy some on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> I consulted a biochemist and a chemical engineer, and they both assured me that starting with modern milk shouldn't have made a significant difference, and that the use of the vinegar to produce the cheese curds wouldn't have had much of an effect either, as there would only have been minute traces of it left in the final glue. So I went back to the medieval arts treatises and performed another survey of the cheese glue recipes. I found that in about half of the recipes that call for cheese glue, it's in the context of woodworking in addition to bookmaking. This would certainly make more sense, since in joinery and general wood construction, you wouldn't have to worry about the discoloration seeping all the way through the wood. I was also able to track down an English translation of a 12th century Arabic work on bookbinding. In it, the author refers to mixed glues as distinct from pastes made of flour or starch, though he doesn't specify the ingredients, and their general use in, in books as protection against worms, but he cautions against using them for gluing choirs because of their propensity to turn dark and ugly. This observation seemed to at least be a good start in terms of backing up my findings that, despite being listed in the medieval arts treatises, cheese glue wouldn't have been suitable for use on the cover of the St. Cuthbert Gospel. And as we saw, the fish glue wouldn't have worked well either. 
So considering the results of this experiment, I think I can fairly safely argue that regardless of what materials were used to create the raised pattern, there is a strong possibility that hide glue might have been used to affix these materials to the board. So I began this project in early 2015, and about six months after I completed it, the British Library published a compilation of brand new scholarship on the St. Cuthbert Gospel, complete with a wonderful chapter written by Nicholas Pickwood, dedicated to explaining the construction of the binding. <laughs> with the benefit of CT scans that had been conducted on the upper cover. <laughs> The CT scans revealed that there is a substance under the leather, but that it fills every nook and cranny of the raised space, and that there is even some evidence of this substance in the depressed parts of the design. This led Piquo to conclude that the binder probably would have attached a clay-like substance to the board, and then stamped it with a metal matrix in order to perfectly imprint the raised design. Even with the help of the CT scans, however, they can't tell for sure what this clay-like substance actually was. I think it's significant to note, however, that they also arrived at the conclusion that gesso wouldn't have been used for this purpose. But regardless of what this clay-like substance was, the binder would have needed to adhere it somehow to the board. Pickwood doesn't try to guess at what sort of glue would have been used for this purpose, but I think we can again safely argue that hide glue was a likely candidate. And while this might seem like a trivial point, what I would like to emphasize with this project is the potential for practical experiments and model building to bring to light information about materials and practices that would otherwise be difficult to discern through intellectual reasoning alone, particularly in a field like bibliography, which focuses on examining the end products of physical, tactile processes, it stands to reason that practical experimentation could, at the very least, contribute toward a better understanding of these processes. This is only one example, but I think it's exciting to discover that even without the help of new digital imaging technologies, it is possible to uncover new information about bookmaking practices from as long as 13 centuries ago. Thank you. All right, well, thank you very much for, for three, three amazingly different and wonderful papers. Uh, I, I want to know about all the glue now. Because <laughs> like, we need chemical formulas for, for the other two now. Um, I have to say that, that that really seemed in one way to hold the papers together because we had collage happening in a, a, a differently obsessive scale in both Orwell and, and Megan's papers. And um, we, we only have about 15 minutes for questions, so I'm just going to throw out a couple of topics that I saw as being very, very important throughout. Uh, where I love that we came back to the, the, the print in surprise places with the matrix at the end on the binding, so even the bindings are, are, are uh, well, you know, this suggests that there were more, actually, of this particular binding, which is, it's so such a unique object now that just thinking about we, what would it, would it have looked like in a different color, colored leather, et cetera, but um, just a wonderful, wonderful survival. And in fact, all, all, three, all three examples are really about contact relics. Uh, and the print as as being related uh, originally to something you would you would touch to a physical relic and uh, you know of Christ you would have uh, you know the the the, this, the one to one scale of of Ord's amazing amazing rubbings really reminded me of wounds of Christ uh, prints that would be to they would tell you what the proper scale was or Christ's feet or in this case these are literal footprints mm -hmm. again this idea of being being on your you being so close to the object to make the print is really is really kind of kind of amazing. So, um, so yes, I'd like everyone to come up to the front and let's talk about about this sort of contact 
printed element that's running through, and um, and and what and what you think what you think people would have, and how they would have would have, would have reacted to to such you know, differences differences in scale. Definitely don't have a microphone to pass around the audience, so I ask that you project your voice for questions, and this might not move either, so yeah. maybe you can all do it again. Louder. Yeah, this is not this is gonna go over to here. So yeah, let me just talk there. louder. So um and I have a question if I could start you all off. Um this was such a pleasure to hear all of your talks and I'm so struck at the, the energy that you all put into these investigations. I'm thinking of Megan taking illegal photos in the British <laughs> and you know, Will's trying to make these bibliographic um, like structures fit things that really won't, and you're making cheese glue in your kitchen, for God's sakes. So uh, we're putting a lot of effort into what I'm thinking of as weird objects, and I'm curious what you all think weird objects are giving back to us. Um, are they worth the blood, sweat, and tears and cheese glue that they, they're asking me to do. Like, are we are we finding out things about bigger problems than just the binding or the rubbing? It does the aura persist of these amazingly weird things? I mean, yes, the aura absolutely um, persists. And um, yeah, I think this is not necessarily just specific to the kind of work that sort of idiosyncratic work that each of us are doing, right? But. Um, but you, you do need to look at the exceptions to begin to think about the rules, right? Like, um, so, for example, in my work with um, antiquarian materials, I deal with a lot of, of large books, a lot of uh, scrolls, a lot of like, very hefty bibliographic objects. Um, and so this was a point at which you know, that tendency to, to be large and capacious actually undid itself, right? Um, which has certainly helped me to think about um, you know, the utility of some very large but slightly smaller antiquarian books, um, things like that. So I, I do think we learn from weird things. Yeah, what, what about presentation? I, obviously, there would have been more than one sheet of paper involved in in making the rubbings. I mean, you wouldn't have a piece of paper that's six feet tall. Um, How is would he, would he have you, folded them and transporting them? Um, so they're all folded up now mm -hmm. um, in these like boxes that are about three feet by three feet. Um, the paper is described as being French paper, and they're all um, individual sheets. So it, yeah. it must so it's have pre-roll. Pre so what? This is pre-roll yeah, pre pre -roll paper. Roll. Um, but it must have been very, very large sheets, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a sense that it has to involve a special kind of paper, a special kind of ink. There's mm -hmm. reference to this special case that Ord mm -hmm. has constructed, so the paper mm -hmm. stays damp, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, so it's it's materially particular um, in every aspect of its production. Yeah, well, well, you're. I, I don't remember there being inaccessible elements in in the, uh, the the Washington Irving books that we have. Are they folded much or in a way that they can be seen? I, I was surprised that there weren't more foldouts and that kind of thing in them, or sort of larger scale. But mm. um, that was generally the extra illustration practices of the, the late nineteenth century seem to have been. Well, you, you cut it down to whatever size of binding you want. So um, you know there are. I didn't show any, but there are definitely prints in there that were that were trimmed extensively and really go right up to the the edge of the, the text block um, that are that are larger originally, which is a shame. But that is that tends to have been what extra illustrators did. There are some foldouts, particularly for the manuscript items. Um, and some weird sort of layout things, uh, but uh, but not as much as I expected. Yeah. 
Do, do we know how the margins look in the Cuthbert Gospel? Or, or is, is, to be honest, I pay very little yeah, attention yeah, to what's actually inside the book. <laughs> wait, wait, I'm, I'm just suddenly thinking, wait, oh, could, could, could the manuscript could have been even older? Was it, you know, it might have been. Was it a newer? But to yeah. answer your question, the weird stuff is absolutely worthwhile. I think so, and, too. And especially why. listening to the, the, the talk about the brasses, that makes me want to run out and, and like find the paper and, some bra and try to do the rubbings myself to figure out what we can learn from actually doing the process again. Yeah, I think you'd yeah. have to really um, talk to National Trust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 create some of that stuff. But, you know, you can go to um, St. Martin in the Fields, the Brass Rubbing Center um, in London in Trafalgar Square, and you could you could nice. do it yourself. Yeah. Right. Maybe, maybe not with printing ink, though. <laughs> no, no, no. I would argue that for physical objects, we're in the era of weird book history because, you know, so many people use the digital surrogates for these, mm. and rightly. I mean, that's what they're there for. Um, but it's it's the weird things that get people to come to the institutions <laughs> uh, because you need that physical aspect if if you want people to come and use the physical thing if you're making it digitally available as well. Um, so something that has some kind of aura to it uh, and maintains that is um, a lot of what we do now um, and what we're seeking. Um, uh, it's great to digitize a, a, an exemplar of a book, but it's it's harder to make the case for adding material that there's already exemplars of out there online, if it's not unique in some way. Right. How many institutions out, out here participate in Forage Fridays on social media? I think a lot of them do. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of a, you know, you have to see it kind of thing. Question. Um, before Nicholas uh, preempted you in, in finding what it was <laughs> the technical way, didn't you consider bone as one of the possibilities? It just seemed like the most you could have polished it, you could have mm -hmm. done. Well, the, I mean, this project could have been extended to encompass a whole, a, a much wider range of materials. When I first went into it, what I was thinking was that I would start with these because they were just the first ones that occurred to me, and then I did some research and found that, you know, would they have been readily available and so on. Um, and then, I, as I mentioned, I thought that, that I would have more problems with some of them, mm -hmm. and that would, that would discard some of the ideas, and then I would move on to more new, um, new ideas. So I, I definitely would have moved on to bone, and, 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 but any number of other kinds of materials that they would have used as well. But when I, when I saw the reactions that the glue caused, that suddenly became a much more interesting uh, entry point into you know, examining this book. So. <laughs> why was, uh, why was the, the what is it for photography that he used? Not available to you. Why could you not? Oh, was a CT Also, he's at the British Library, and they, you know, would would be able to actually do that kind of a scan for a book in their collection. Whereas, as an external researcher, I don't think they would have looked kindly on me coming yeah. in and wanting to. You have to sneak into a hospital at night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but Bone is a good is a really good point because even though the CT scans disproved it, given mm -hmm. it, that they could have had relics in it. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, this is an off-the-wall question because it, it, it's the things we don't do. Uh, did you consider destroying a 19th-century Bible with the raised uh, aspects that that has to see how they did it in the 19th century and whether it was applicable? Oh. You know, there, there are those. You know, you, you've yeah. seen them. The, the ones yeah. from the 1880s that have, have their three-dimensional on the covers. Just get one. That's I'll send you one. <laughs> you know, I think I assumed that in the 19th century they probably would have used 
um, board to build up. They could have easily carved out, um, you know, sections of board and built them up of the book board that they were using because well, you, you'll, you'll take it apart and tell me. Okay. <laughs> I guess I just assumed that they wouldn't have used that that the same sort of approach because all book boards were wooden in the medieval period and that they might not have been able to carve wood to such an extent because yeah, it, exactly. it's really rounded on the top. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it was carved wood, it would have been more square, I think. Um, anyway, so I, that's that's why I thought that maybe they hadn't done that. So that's a good idea. Thank you. <laughs> In the back. Do you have any questions for each other? <laughs> oh, we, oh, there's one. Okay. I have a question. Did it ever occur to you? Do you have a conservation laboratory? At, did you work with conservators? Yes. Okay, because it's it's a book that's been worked on a lot. Absolutely. So. Yeah. I think. Um, and really what I, I feel like this project is more about conservation science than necessarily, but it also sort of encompasses book history, obviously. Um, and I did, I have done a lot of uh, conservation and bookbinding work also sort of um, in a, aside from my professional work. Um, and that's why I wanted to sort of approach it from a more practical standpoint. Um, but to be honest, I, I, I know one um, book and paper conservator who works at the Art Gallery of Ontario and I called her and said, I think they would have used hide glue for this. And she said, of course they would have used hide glue. And I said, okay, well, is that written down anywhere? <laughs> and she said, no, that's just, you know, from working with historical uh, objects, you know, she's learned through experience that, you know, what kinds, if you're doing restoration work with period um, materials, uh, she learned that hide glue is, is, it doesn't have any negative effects, but nobody's written a paper, but not that I could find anyway, and certainly not in conjunction with the St. Cuthbert Gospel. So I, I think in a way this sort of uh, gestures towards what I, I would like to have a greater sort of interplay between the knowledge that conservators have and, and um, you know, the study of bibliography and book history because they, they inform each other so well, but often we don't read the same journals and, we, and the same books and so on, so we don't always share the information. You're, you had that picture of the enormous uh, rubbing. Where was it? Uh, which which rubbing? The, the, the one that was you started off with, the one that was on the next to a, a, a computer. Right, right. Um, that's from Norfolk. I can get you the exact location. Um, but the 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 sort of showpiece graphs in um, Go's collection that come from Ward's work um, were mostly taken on a particular trip, um, and we have their journal for this trip uh -huh. uh, in. Or, uh, since um, so it's, it's quite well documented and okay. I, can, I can look it up. Also, the um, individual brasses are all, all cataloged. Um, anyway, question about that? Yeah, uh, thank you all for these wonderful papers. Uh, I was thinking, as, as I was listening to the last paper about how important it is to understand the making of the St. Cuthbert Gospel, how obviously all three papers are tied together by the importance of understanding method um, for creation. And I maybe think about Ord and what he was trying to know with the rubbings. I mean, obviously, he wanted to get a beautiful aesthetic book to show at the end of it, and he was an antiquarian, and he was a collector, but there was something about the physical act, the creation of this huge sheet of paper that, that he could get to that maybe other things, yeah. other methods couldn't. And I just wondered if you could comment on that, if there was some particular particular thing you think he was getting at. Um, so in Ward's own writings, he doesn't sort of reflect on what's important about brasses, but um, if you go through Sepulchral Monuments, which is six volumes, um, it's a big, big work. Uh, 
many illustrations, but a lot of texts as well. Uh, one of the driving um, reasons for um, interest in this, which I, I find really sort of compelling in, in the context of other antiquarian pursuits, is the um, information it gives you about costume. Um, they go on at length about women's hairstyles that are depicted on these brasses. Um, and arms and armaments, right? So uh, I think it is probably catalyzed in the first place by an interest in heraldry, right? A lot of these antiquarians are also practicing heralds. So they're making the visitations, they're going to the churches um, to get the family history from the, the coats of arms, right? Um, and then they can take it back and do a pedigree for someone and that's how they make their living. Um, but ancillary to that is this interest in sort of social history um, in, a, in a certain way. Um, and that's where you start to, um, that kind of granular detail isn't necessarily going to be captured well in a freehand drawing um, done in some dusty Paris church, right? Uh, so there's a real human interest uh, to, to what they're doing, as well as a technical. Yeah, can we talk about addition size, about the uh, sepulchral, uh, uh, sepulchral it's a minor, <laughs> monuments, yes, that one. Yeah. How many do you think were printed? Because if there's a single, if there's one pass through the press on those 15th century right. uh, you know, plates every time. I right, mean, no, and so this is something I, I was actually thinking about. While you're, you're actually damaging exactly. the history that you're trying to protect exactly, by exactly. Which is doing like, the um, the story of late 18th and 19th century antiquarian studies is destroying the very yep. thing that, you know, because we're on the cusp um, in the 1780s and 90s of these programs of restoration that are, for the most part, um, going to wind up doing much more harm than good, particularly to the, the reagents that they're using to clean the brass actually wind up taking off a lot of the, the detail that's captured um, by, by Ors materials. So, but when I was listening to Will's paper about extra illustration, um, I looked at copies of sepulchral monuments um, at the Huntington, mm -hmm. um, at the Houghton, and at the um, British Library. They mm -hmm. all have these plates, mm -hmm. right? So it's a, it's a run of at least a couple hundred. It's, so it's, does it does it get fainter? Um, these all look about, about the, the same, same to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if you looked at there's the the knight seems to stay in pretty good shape, um, mm -hmm. but uh, the the shields are pretty damaged mm -hmm. um, already. They're pretty worn. So um, but. I, I, I haven't seen any copies that don't include them. I guess it's a little harder than copper, at least. So that yeah, but I'm also wondering if I were to look at ones that went into private hands, mm. whether in institutional collections. Um, I mean, there is that moment where Go says, and here we have a plate that's been passed through, but there's actually, in the copies I've seen, there's three plates that have been produced no. using this mm. method. So that makes me wonder if the more extravagant... Um, Brasses, right? Knight, and then there's two with um, text no. were not included in every uh, uh, every copy. So it'd be interesting to do a fuller census and see whether that varies, and see also what kind of degradation you get in the. It, it would not be above, I'm sure, touching it up, right? If they had to. Sorry, the last question. So, so Megan, I just the keeps saying rubbings, but these aren't rubbings; these are prints. The prints, right? yeah, yeah. And so what? Why? I mean, I know you <laughs> said that they didn't do rubbings till later, but I'm just like, does yeah. it feel more booky and more documentary to have it printed? I mean, it just well, is. You get you get a positive image, yeah. right? Rather, mm -hmm. where um, engravings would give you, or uh, regular rubbing would give you the negative. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I really do. Isn't, think it, isn't it simply that a brass sepulchral plate? is constructed like a, an engraved printing plate. 
Yeah. It has yeah. it, the image is made up of incised lines, and so somebody thought, well, we'll just fill those with yeah, that, yeah. and we'll crack with it. Uh, but it's much easier just to you know go in with a, a piece of graphite, and and you can take a rubbing that way. That's that's the you need the right paper. You need I think, the right I think paper. The paper as you I think that's the right paper. The yeah, issue. because I was yeah, talking with moistened. Um, with with Devin um, Devin Fitzgerald who works on um, East Asian cultures. And he's saying that they're doing this in China, um, so the kind of rubbing technique you're yeah. alluding to, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before. But their paper is, of course, much, much thinner. So my, I guess, hypothesis is that the, the paper um, doesn't make the simpler method of rubbing pragmatic. The Ashmolean has the oldest um, rubbings produced that way that I've been able to track down, and those are from the 1830s. So, which of course would be at about the time that you would have cheap um, paper, machine paper that, that you could you easily get wolf do. paper instead of exactly yeah. yeah. Um, so I think it's something to do with with the paper, um, but I haven't fully sussed out that yet. Okay. I think we have to pause. I want to say thank you so much to all of our speakers and our <laughs>